How would you conduct an incident response for an entire country? Even when it's an organization, there are procedures for how you might approach that. But when it's 27 different life-critical government ministries, each with up to 850 individual devices, that's uncharted territory. And that's what I want to talk about in this episode. How do you conduct a recovery process while ensuring continuity, while also collecting enough forensic evidence when it's a country that has been attacked? Okay, real quick, before we get too far, this is actually the second part of a two-part episode. If you haven't already, take a moment and go back and listen to the episode just before this, episode 78, called Defending Costa Rica from Conte Ransomware. In that episode, I profiled Esteban Jimenez, an incident response leader within Costa Rica. And we discussed his unique background and how, over the last 16 years, Costa Rica as a nation has stepped up its cybersecurity hygiene in general. In this episode, we'll look at how that preparation helped Costa Rica handle the Conte ransomware attack, which continues to have lasting effects today, 18 months after the attack. We'll dive deep into the reconstruction of the government's cybersecurity program following Conte, and how the country handled a second ransomware attack from the Hive ransomware group. And we'll also discuss what yet remains to be done to secure Costa Rica and other Latin American countries from future attacks. Esteban has a lot of great information yet to share in this episode. I hope you'll stick around. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from the makers of Mayhem Security. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm discussing the after-effects of a 2022 ransomware attack on Costa Rica, a sovereign and democratic nation in Central America, and how the nascent incident response team there kicked into high gear, and what lessons might be learned from other governments faced with similar attacks in the future, such as other Latin American countries, as they too begin to raise their shields in defense of future cyber attacks. As we heard in the previous episode, there's a group of cybersecurity leaders in Costa Rica who are working with various ministries of the government. This group provided the ministries with the results of penetration tests in an effort to shore up the country's defenses. This was a slow process, as many ministries did not always understand the need for such security reports. At least a healthy dialogue had begun, which brings us to Esteban. All right. Well, my name is Esteban Jimenez. I am the chief of technology of the Costa Rican cyber defense company named Ati Cyber. And um, I used to be a um, cybersecurity engineer uh, uh, for Intel Corporation. I worked for Intel Security uh, for about five years. And I also worked with uh, IBM Security. Uh, uh, prior to that, I also worked in uh, other um, um, uh, missions with Bank of America, uh, so I've had some uh, good runs with, uh, with some of the big players in the industry. On the morning of April 18th, 2022, Esteban's phone rang. 
the minister from the Ministry of Hacienda was on the line. He said the country had suffered a ransomware attack and that the attack had taken out many servers, many servers across many different ministries. Esteban then learned that the attack happened a few days prior, yet this was the first either he or anyone he knew had heard of it. So right away, Esteban and his team, they were walking into a chaotic situation where seemingly nothing productive had happened in the first 48 to 72 hours. So how did Esteban approach the situation? Well, uh, first of all, uh, as a good incident commander, what we had to do was to order the process. We needed to put some order in the process because uh, the first meeting that I, I got in, uh, it was you know it was really, really uh, strange because there were 68 people connected to a Zoom meeting. Nobody was talking. There was only one guy talking and, and he was telling a lot of things. He was wasting everybody's time with what he was saying. And uh, there was no order. I mean, uh, think about this. They, they were um, somehow engaged with their SOC provider for, for at least five days, you know, the, the, the past five days before the day we got in. And for five days, they were not able to structure any response teams. There was no response process whatsoever. Nobody was documenting anything. There was just they were just uh, uh, repeating uh, things without any kind of process in the middle. No methodologies, and they were just trying to uh, catch on with latest developments, figuring out if if there was new alerts. But at, at the end, what they decided was to shut everything down because they didn't know what to do. Okay, so this is not good. The entire country is shut down. And there's gridlock in the government offices about what to do next. So calling in Esteban, that was a good first step. So we um, uh, started, and, and for everyone who has done incident response, um, they, they will relate to this. Um, the first thing that you need to do is, uh, once again, put some order in the process, and you have to make sure that uh, right the right people is on, on the call, right? You, you need to uh, lower the noise as, you, as much as you can because you need to make sure that people is completely focused on the recovery or, uh, I mean, on some of the stages. If you're in containment or if you're in recovery, they need to be focused on that, right? Right. So 16 years ago, Costa Rica decided to invest in itself. And part of that investment was to bring in high-tech companies like Dell, Cisco, Amazon, and Microsoft. They had offices and rather large workforces already in the country. So why not enlist their support? Um, but in this case, there were so many people, uh, some, uh, pro uh, 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 some of the um, uh, providers, we had people from Cisco, we got people from Microsoft, people from Dell, but there was no structure, right? Um, and we came up with a process that I call threat suppression. So this is going to be a little bit different from what you know ordinary incident response uh, methodologies uh, are are stated. But people who has worked with incidents in the government or critical infrastructure will under understand this. So threat suppression is a way in which you switch a little bit the um, uh, the incident response stages, right? You get detection, you get analysis, containment, 
eradication, recovery, and post-incident activity are, you know, usually the stages or the formal stages of this. But when you do threat suppression, you have to you have to understand that the infrastructure that is currently being uh, attacked or is under attack at the moment is resulting in financial losses for the whole country and potentially lives are at risk. This is true. Unlike a corporation, which might only see its profits hurt by going dark, shutting down an entire country, on the other hand, has life-critical consequences. For that reason, they needed to approach the incident response differently. So it's different when you attend an incident response on a private company, because you know that, yeah, I mean, there is, an, uh, there is an incident, it's going on, there will be some systems affected, probably, you know, uh, collaborators will not be able to log into their laptops and things like that, which is fine. So you can you can be a little bit more relaxed and have some more much more time to take samples and things like that. But when you're facing an incident at a national level, you don't have time. There's no time. You have to focus on defending the infrastructure as much as you can, trying to you know maintain the process and your um, and your order. But you have to put first the security of the people, right? So if you take too long on obtaining uh, samples or if you uh, prioritize the wrong systems, at any time, this is going to result in a catastrophe. So in a private country, you can collect evidence from systems without necessarily having to worry about continuity right away. In a country, however, you need continuity right away and somehow also need to collect that evidence from the attack. That requires structure. That requires sequencing. Right. So threat suppression is a way in which you can go in on an organized organized way, go through the process of incident response, um, but it's much more aggressive. Right. So you have to, as, as, you, uh, as you develop your stages, you have to make sure that um, uh, sanitization is being performed. You have to make sure that the continuity of the operation of the of the of the of the public institution is is assured. At the same time, you have to create your communication plan, and you have to have all those pieces together, right? So uh, it's it's much more um, uh, intensive. On, on labor and the the the, the teams are um, uh, you have to go with with the with the teams who are people that it's not uh, trained on on incident response. You have to get, grab people from different institutions uh, to get your communication uh, flow up and running. You have to be informed as like an incident commander. You have to be informed about every single thing that's happening. Uh, you need to know if other systems are. Uh, are blowing up. You need to know if the communication plan has rolled out and things like that. So you you have to do that. But at the same time, you have to be honest with the people because they need to know that for the next uh, three days, four days, five days, one week, uh, there will be a continuous uh, process of um, engagement, right? People will need to wake up. They will need to take turns, go and sleep for two to three hours, go back, work uh, directly at the data center, go with the recovery pieces, and, and it's a continuous process. So you have to be honest with them and tell, uh, this is something that I, I did at, the, at that moment was, 
Uh, listen, guys, I'm going to be honest with you. This is going to be painful. Everybody's going to be exhausted at the end, but we have a mission. We need to get all the continuity of, the, of this ministry up and running by at least the next three days. We need to start recovering some of the pieces and putting those systems back together uh, from now within the next three days. So it's going to be completely intensive. And that's what we uh, started to do. So for around three days, 72 hours, the people of Costa Rica had limited, if any, access to government services. Think about that. You check into a hospital and they have no records, no health insurance. You go to the bank and maybe you can't be verified. Or you run a business and you can't access foreign trade or pay the proper taxes to keep your organization afloat. Then, slowly, access returned once again. Well, at the beginning, since we were not... Um... Uh, aware of the damage of the of, of the impact, the full impact of, of this attack, we had to uh, stay quiet. Um, everybody, everybody was of course asking. The media was asking what happened. Uh, why were those systems down? And basically, um, for the for the first forty eight hours, which is. Uh, um, uh, it's it's a threshold that you'll find also in some other um, um, disciplines uh, like you know forensics that that people in in, in law enforcement do. That the, the first forty eight hours you need to uh, uh, stay calm, try to assess the damage, right? Uh, organize your teams, and then uh, get a statement out, right? Because if you don't do that, uh, things will get out of control, right? The more time, especially in a situation like this with uh, um, uh, a, a national infrastructure um, uh, compromised, uh, you have to, uh, of course, you have to be in control. So um, communications out at, uh, during those 48 hours were, were completely controlled um, and, and people were told that there was an attack. Of course, we, we had to be... Um, uh, uh, sincere about this because uh, many many organizations sometimes make the decision of lying about what's happening. Uh, what I explained to the minister was that in this era, you cannot lie about this. If if you lie and if you say that nothing is happening uh, around the corner, the hacking group will put a shame on you because they're going to make it public. Right? Anyway, they're just going to uh, make public everything that's happening. They're going to put uh, a lot of billboards out about their achievement, and you're going to be left um, like a fool in front of the whole country. So being able to communicate what was going on, that was tricky. You don't want to panic the country. On the other hand, you can't pretend that it's business as usual. The ransomware operators have the ability to publicly shame organizations that do not negotiate directly with them. Additionally, the ransomware organizations can publish any data they've stolen. So deciding how to go public from the government's perspective, that was a very critical first step. So the first communication was, yes, we have assessed a damage in our internal systems uh, because of uh, 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 we're uh, preventing this damage to be uh, uh, to widespread more into other institutions. We have decided to shut down the whole infrastructure, and uh, our teams are assessing 
the damage. So that was first the first 48 hours. Uh, after the 40, the first 48 hours, we had a first number. That first number were around 850 servers who were affected. And this is only one uh, ministry, right? And we're not taking into account the other 26 institutions, right? Uh, so around 850 servers. What we did was um, uh, form four teams. And uh, uh, these teams had uh, specific uh, missions uh, in which they um, uh, we put up uh, uh, a committee, first of all, the crisis committee, was, which was um, uh, conformed by the minister. Uh, there were people of the government also included there, law enforcement and some others, because we needed to have um, some uh, good channels of communications uh, in, in, with other institutions, with the international community in some other places, right? Uh, but then uh, we also had a contention team. So uh, this is one of the first teams that we put in place because they needed to make sure that there was no additional activity happening within the infrastructure or the infrastructure net. So remember, the ransomware could still be spreading, and they had to first contain that spread while working on continuity, while working on recovery, while collecting evidence for forensics. So contention was exactly that. Um, we created what I like to call a contention cube. Okay, so a contention cube, you'll, you will see, and, and many of my colleagues have different names for this, but a contention cube is you have to shut down the border of your uh, compromised uh, uh, infrastructure, and, and you can be uh, very careful and put in different sensors uh, to track down and see if there is um, uh, new activity going on in the network. So you can put some NDR sensors, just stay quiet. You know that the border is out, so there, there's no communications out to the internet, and, and you have to just wait, see if there are any systems trying to talk to, uh, to other systems in the, in the infrastructure, at least in the compromise zone. Uh, and you can also go in and take samples from some of the compromised systems uh, a step uh, at a time and try to narrow down what the root cause was. So we had a team working on that type of contention. And we also had the good assistance of the Microsoft Dart uh, team. Uh, they came in with some of their uh, tools to work on. Um, one of the first things that we figure out is that the minister, the ministry had a, the same conduct as as we've seen before. Like, you know, the same thing that I tell I told you 16 years ago, um, infrastructure that was over 10 years outdated, you know, um, many as much as 50% or probably more of their servers were not um, um, charged with any antivirus. Some others had uh, Symantec, but a really outdated version of Symantec uh, endpoint uh, detection. The, the, the Symantec was pretty much useless against the Conti ransomware. Uh, just destroyed it completely. They, they, it was so easy to just shut down the Symantec uh, agent. And, and those are the, some of the first things that we started realizing. Oh, man. So systems without any antivirus protections? Systems with old versions of Symantec? This is almost comical if it wasn't so serious. Um, because of that, uh, the contention team, uh, we took the decision of switching all the endpoint protection agents and, and replacing them with different flavors of new Microsoft Defender 365 
licenses now charged with EDR processes. And for uh, some of the most important servers, we charge them with uh, new uh, licenses of, for example, Sentinel-1. Uh, so this is a, also a, um, a design that sometimes I put in place on these kinds of operations. And I call it a density design because you can put one uh, EDR type of agent on, let's say, laptop computers and some some of the non-privileged computers. And this is a, an agent that um, it, it, it is not as aggressive and not as expensive as a major EDR like CrowdStrike or you know something like, like that. Uh, and you get to move quickly with this um, lightweight agent and put it on some of those computers um, who are not uh, or do not belong to critical users. But at the same time, you can put a much uh, robust agent on servers and, and, and laptops from, from the administrative uh, team, you know, from, from the uh, people at, at infrastructure or people with privileged access. You will put there agents with a much more aggressive policy, right? So we started to do that, uh, removing the Simon Tech agents, cleaning out some of the computers, at least to uh, create a, a, a new environment, started to build a, a recovery environment and, and, and where we could you know, take some of these systems and test them. Uh, so that started to run. And so now we had, um, for example, a, an NDR inside the, 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 the premise. So we had uh, StealthWatch. They had a, a Cisco StealthWatch demo. Uh, they had a POC uh, that was not in place at the moment of the attack. They, they just had it there unplugged. So I, I told them, you know, let's go ahead and turn on the threat watch so we can have nor uh, north-south visibility and get some of the new EDR and XDR agents on the computers as we started, you know, bringing, bringing them up and see what they can find, right? So contention was completely focused on not letting anything out of the contention cube uh, as, you know, next, the, the next team was working on recovery. Remember, these are simultaneous tasks, containing the damage and also getting the secured systems back up and running quickly. This is quite the coordination feat. Uh, recovery was focused on the actual recovery of the backup server. And because this was the only uh, uh, recovery infrastructure that we had, I mean, there, there was no other backups out there. They, they started to work on the manual recovery of those images. Um, the ransomware completely blew up the, the, um, the, uh, the backup system, uh, but some of the backups were still um, uh, useful. But the problem is that we couldn't got into the interface of these um, backup system. It was an old system from Dell. So we had to bring Dell SecureWorks to manually reconstruct the interface and get at least some of those images out manually from the index of the, of the backup system. So this, this team was focused completely on trying to recover some of those images. Esteban, he had to get creative with the recovery. If the backup existed without its schema, he had to go look to find evidence of that schema from the past. He had to look to the Wayback Machine for help. And then uh, we got a, the continuity team. The continuity team was focused on, okay, now that we have some uh, systems 
uh, in place. We are trying to bring back some of the backups. There are some systems out, like for example, the web page uh, that, that we have. Uh, and this is interesting because uh, they had no backups for the web page. So what I did was to log into the Wayback Machine, you know, this the the, <laughs> the portal uh, in on the internet, and use the Wayback Machine to recover the HD um, uh, the HTML code and provide that to a copy of the of the Wayback Machine um, uh, backup that was in 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 the cloud. Provide a copy of that to the developers team so they can start uh, they could start reconstructing. The, the the web page the main the main web page because everything was lost and the, the wayback machine was uh, one of the uh, resources that we that we utilized to bring the web page back so that was really really interesting uh, so continuity was completely focused on that and they had a mission of bringing a list of systems uh, um, based on a a priority scale. Uh, uh, for example, the custom system, which was one of the most important because without customs, um, they needed to uh, create all the invoices manually. People in the country had to go uh, to the bank and you have to think about this. This image will stay in my mind forever. It's long lines of people with invoices in their hands, you know, like 20 years before. Like they used to do this 20 years before and, and, and people at the banks because, new, you know, new employees, people, you know, uh, of my age or something like that, who was never part of how to create their tax uh, statement um, uh, manually, uh, they had to go back to old files, old archives in the banks to understand how to create the process of manually uh, putting a, a tax form. For a, for a customer, because uh, there was no system. So the whole country came back or went back 20 years in the past uh, for about a week uh, until we were able to start recovering some of those systems. One thing we learned about the Conti Ransomware Group was its organization. For a criminal organization, it had all the bells and whistles of a legitimate organization. It had an HR department, it had levels of management, and it even had its own customer service. Here's a voice message that some of the Conti victims received. So, uh, look, um, I'm calling you from Conti Ransomware Group. Your company right now in negotiations with our group regarding data recovery. Typically, a ransomware victim will at least have to start the negotiations, even if they don't intend to pay. In episode 72, I talked with ransomware negotiator Mark Lance about the process. You would think that Costa Rica might engage in negotiation, but in the end, did it actually pay anything? There was no money, but there was a negotiation. Uh, and, and some people will think that you should never negotiate with the hacker group. And that's true. That's completely true. Uh, I mean, that should be your first response to uh, an, an attack like this. You should not negotiate with terrorists, right? Hmm. However, in my experience, there is one exception. And this exception is when there is lives uh, at stake. 
you know, and some of these groups know about this. And that's why we have some specialized uh, hacking groups who target critical infrastructure in hospitals, unfortunately, because they know that if you attack a hospital, there is no um, option than to pay or at least negotiate a payment because every minute that your systems are down, people are is dying. So you are not, you cannot prioritize money or money loss over the possibility to just pay whatever ransom is being uh, requested to reestablish the services for a humanitarian uh, purpose, right? Um, and this is something that has happened also in the United States, Mexico, when Pemex was uh, also affected by uh, one of the most, you know, highly publicized attacks uh, a few years back, they had to negotiate because this is critical infrastructure of a country. And now we are actually talking uh, of continental critical infrastructure, which is a concept that is being, you know, formed uh, recently after attacks in Ukraine and, you know, the war in Ukraine and all that. Now we're thinking, what is the infrastructure that holds uh, a continent together? Let, let's say, for example, an attack on the Panama Channel, for example, right? This is, is continental critical infrastructure. It's not just one country. It's the full uh, continent that will be affected or a, a huge, vast region of populations that will get affected. Um, so this is, the, this is what, what happens. And yes, there was a negotiation uh, that ranged on, you know, from, one, from $5 million to some $1.5 million. But to my knowledge, this, this ransom was never paid. So I'm wondering, how long did it take to get things back to almost normal? I mean, are we talking about a week? Are we talking longer than that? Well, uh, and a state of emergency was declared uh, in the country, right? Um, which is still in place. So if you were to think that uh, the incident has been resolved, that the reality is that it's not. So many of the systems of the ministry are still out. Um, we recovered most of them in the first three weeks, which was my mission as an incident commander was to bring this methodology, put some order and make sure that for the first three weeks, um, as much as the uh, lost infrastructure was uh, recovered, and that was my mission the first three weeks. And then I, I put that in the hands of a project uh, project management team that are still working on recovering some of those systems. Uh, I, you know, I can tell you that systems from the Ministry of Public Transportation are still uh, missing. I can tell you that systems from the uh, La Caja, which is, uh, this is probably interesting for a second interview because uh, this is the first wave. But there was a second wave of, of attacks. Esteban's talking about the Hive attack, which happened at the end of May 2022. And shortly thereafter, the United States government arrested the members of the Hive ransomware group. Here's U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland. Last night, the Justice Department dismantled an international ransomware network responsible for extorting and attempting to extort hundreds of millions of dollars from victims in the United States and around the world. Known as the Hive Ransomware Group, this network targeted more than 1,500 victims around the world since June of 2021. Hive Ransomware affiliates employed a double extortion model. First, they infiltrated a victim system and stole sensitive data. Next, 
the affiliates deployed malicious software, encrypting the victim's system, rendering it unusable. And finally, they demanded a ransom payment in exchange for a system decryption key and a promise not to publish any stolen data. Hive was the second wave, exactly. Conti was the first one then. Well, we had people from the FBI here trying to get some of the samples. Um, really, really short after the attack in Costa Rica, the Conti group was completely dissolved, right? They, right. they, they That was their, their final attack, you know? After a really, really profiting campaign on 2021 that they got out with millions of dollars in revenue and uh, in, in really, really large attacks on U.S. infrastructure, for example, they, they ended up their um, exercises with the attack on Costa Rica, right? And then they, they degraded and, and they split out and some of their best uh, hackers integrated other, uh, other affiliates. Hive was using uh, the knowledge of Conti on the uh, vulnerabilities of our institutions, and they continued the attack on a second wave. Uh, and the second wave uh, blew out the systems of the Ministry of Health, which are still in the, in, in, in the, in the making or in the, in the reconstructing phase. Um, and the, the, sad fa the, the sad part of this is that because it was the health ministry, uh, a lot of files from sick people got lost. You know, for example, uh, uh, you have to think that this is in the pandemic, right? This, this happened during the pandemic. So people who was in list for a um, transplant was put on hold because there was no systems. So people died, unfortunately. And I uh, I have closed uh, uh, per, uh, 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 friends who were affected by this. One of them uh, unfortunately died uh, because she was not able to get the transplant that she needed because the, the list was missing. Um, and, uh, and infrastructures of this country are still being restored uh, till today. So we're talking about now over a year mm -hmm. and, and the, the incident is still ongoing. At the time of the Conte attack, Costa Rica was going through a very consequential presidential election. The first round in February 2022 was inconclusive and required a second round in April of 2022, which coincided with the Conte attack. That's when Rodrigo Chavez was elected with 52% of the final vote. He assumed office on May 8, 2022. Within a few days of being installed as the new president of Costa Rica, President Chavez declared Conte ransomware attack on his country as an act of war. This is the first time a world leader has elevated the criminal attacks on its government to underscore how the attack had briefly crippled his entire nation. Here's the Evening Standard. Hello, I'm John Weeks, and this is the Evening Standard's Tech and Science Daily. The new president of Costa Rica has declared his country is at war with a ransomware group which has been carrying out cyber attacks on the country's government. The cybercriminal gang known as Conti has disabled agencies across the government since April using ransomware attacks. 
Costa Rican President Rodrigo Chavez, who began his four-year term just 10 days ago, said that Conti was receiving help from people within the country and called for support from international allies. It's after the ransomware group made a statement that it planned to overthrow the government by means of a cyber attack, demanding a government ransom of $20 million. So having a cyber component to a potential overthrow of a democratically elected government is perhaps really scary to think about. Perhaps this is a new reality for some world leaders. We have a new president, and uh, interestingly enough, he was the former minister of Hacienda. <laughs> you know, before the attacks, he was fired uh, from the previous government. Hmm. He got fired. Uh, there was a lot of, you know, uh, public uh, opinion about this because, uh, you know, you would think that it was, you know, really uh, convenient, you know, what happened. Um, you get uh, you get fired of the government and then uh, a, a few months after uh, you are elected president, you know, from, you know, which was really weird. And um, there was a lot of, you know, conspiracy theories about it. Um, what I can say from my experience in the ground, you know, with my boats on the ground, is that I can, I could say that there was some assistance. You know, this group received assistance from somebody who was aware of our local uh, environment, from our local culture, from how people in the government of Costa Rica uh, deals with uh, holidays. Uh, they knew what infrastructure to attack first, out of you know thousands of servers, they got to hit the three most important ones in the ministry. So to me, there was assistance, you know. Uh, and this I could I could you know completely say, and there was a report about this and all that. Uh, there was assistance to to my knowledge. And if you uh, know groups like Conti, you know that they recruit, right? So you get to recruit people that worked in some of these um, uh, affected in, in institutions or or uh, companies or things like that, Conti will pay them a little bit of money to receive intelligence, right? Uh, or you can also be one of these people who got out and was not really happy uh, with your previous employee employer um, and you got somebody with Bitcoin, you know, a couple of millions in Bitcoin and you can just rent uh, services from Conti. We definitely know that there was a, an affiliate in Costa Rica that was uh, really close to Conti because we saw Conti, my company, we dealt with this with this uh, infection since 2021 here in Costa Rica. So we know that there was an operator here somewhere, right? Um, so, you know, you would think that this means that there was not only potential assistance, we know that there was an affiliate operating somewhere in Costa Rica or close to Costa Rica. Um, and we know that some of these types of attacks are usually something that are uh, really useful for uh, uh, initial um, trainees of the country group, because this will mean that they can go up in the rank. Uh, if you will get a challenge like this, and yeah, I mean, you, you could... Uh, receive a payment from somebody to rent your services. Well, what they're going to do is, well, we have this group of, uh, of of people in our affiliate. They're trying to rank up. Uh, let's put this mission to them and see how they do, right? 
um, we know that there was some uh, escalations within the Comte group after this. And we know that some of these actors uh, later founded some other hacking group because of the, um, uh, let's say, the, the, tro the trophy that they, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, that they brought back home. Um, the, 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 they were winners uh, in the eyes of Comte, right, in the, in the group. So we know that, yeah, there was a, a lot of things and, and uh, assistance, local assistance, plus uh, potentially uh, an operator. So without getting political, I'm an outsider. I'm just reacting to the fact that the new president then called for a state of war and declared the insiders in his country as traitors to the country. He announced this on his fourth day in office. Which also was a little bizarre because, you know, he was probably, I mean, we had not released the uh, confidential report at that time. Um, Minister of, of the moment was actually the antagonist of the new president because he was the person who kicked him out, right? So to my knowledge, there was no information, at least not official information out stating that there was somebody in the country uh, working with the Conti group. You know, uh, this was all being managed um, in, you know, small group of people. And uh, to know that they, that the president openly stated that there were traitors in the country was a little bit of a shock for a lot of people, <laughs> you know, because uh, I don't think he was uh, aware of the details on the recovery operation at that time. Probably later, they briefed him about it, but not at that time. So, yeah, it was uh, it was a little bit of a shock. Uh, it was also some, um, you know, uh, it was a little bit disrespectful for many of the people who worked in the process because many of them uh, got, they didn't receive any payments. Uh, we didn't receive any payments, you know, for, for assisting the government. Uh, people who was, um, you know, they didn't slept for uh, three, four weeks, one month, you know. Um, so it was a little bit disrespectful in my, you know, if I, if I would have been the president at that time, instead of looking for insider uh, or traders in the country, I would have just um, congratulated the people who assisted uh, and gave their time and gave their, their family time to bring the systems back. But it turned out to be a really, really um, inappropriate to my, you know, to my understanding and a really inappropriate the, uh, statement. What so I would guess that the Costa Rican government has conducted investigations and perhaps they've been identified and arrested? Uh, is um, a public institution which did, that is called the Contraloria. Um, this is the institution who has been much more in uh, the investigation of what happened. And they have released uh, two reports right now. Um, one, uh, criticizing the effectiveness of the public apparatus to understand in the first place what was happening. Second, to uh, act uh, swiftly when the first alerts were um, uh, provided. And then uh, um, then the, the, uh, the communication who was not uh, effective because the problem was that uh, at the beginning, the first three weeks, we came in with a really technical team, people with a lot of knowledge, as, as I'm saying, 
we we got in, we, we established a process, we got assistance from uh, SecureWorks, we got assistance from Microsoft, Cisco, there was a lot of people. But after the declaration of emergency, um, it, it turns out that the technical process and the specialized process got replaced with a political process. So everything that we were work that we worked on and the methodologies and the order that we set in place um, suddenly vanished. Everybody was sent out to to back home, and the thing was completely uh, politicized uh, from that point of view. So the regulator has criticized that. Now we also have some numbers that state that over three billion dollars uh, in losses have been um, probably uh, extracted uh, just from the attack to the Ministry of Health without adding the 26 other institutions. So the, the, the problem on the finance is, is huge. We, won't even, we don't even know if at some point we will be able to understand what was the complete impact of this attack. We don't know, right? And uh, we don't know the extent of it. Um, so all we have is a report from the regulator that summarizes some of the events that happened and uh, the payments that were made by some of these institutions to receive um, uh, assistance or emergency funds from uh, international um, uh, institutions or organizations and, and local organizations, but nothing outside. Probably, actually, I don't know what happened with all the computers and systems that we preserved uh, to be passed through the forensic um, stage, the post-activity or, or, or uh, you know, the, the, the post-incident phase, uh, we, we saved a lot of systems to be passed on to the forensic team. Uh, we don't have a report on that, so we don't know uh, exactly what, what the findings were. Given what happened in Costa Rica, I'm wondering if Esteban or others have received requests from their neighbor to the north or their neighbor to the south or others in Latin America for help in shoring up their government systems. Well, um, we have a hostile neighbor in the north, right? Uh, Nicaragua has shown its um, uh, non-participation or non-collaboration um, um, uh, status for for a while now and um uh we received uh assistance requests or or you know offers from uh israel spain who was one of the most active uh collaborators um the caesar you know from from spain and uh we received from the united states uh, Korea, uh, uh, of course, and some of them actually participated, uh, but way after, you know, like right now, the you know, the government of the United States, at the moment of the incident, we only received a few um, visits from the FBI and things like that. Uh, but it was not until recently that the United States has approved a, a fund through USAID to provide Costa Rica with around $25 million dollars. Uh, to strengthen their uh, security capabilities. And I think this is really, really accurate and really good because uh, you need to think that <clears throat> in the context where we are right now located, uh, you know, a, a war that's been um, actively affecting everyone, 
conflicts with China and, and the United States and a lot of you know countries <clears throat> like this, uh, you have to think that Costa Rica is also uh, a country that sits on a strategic uh, position because we are right next to the Panama Channel, right? So this has been a debate for many, many years. Um, and I actually did a uh, an article, a couple of articles with the uh, South Command uh, of the U.S. Army. Uh, they have a magazine. So we put some of these points up in, in that article where um, uh, the necessity of, of assisting some of our infrastructures in Latin America is growing rapidly. Uh, if you leave our infrastructures in the shadows, uh, what you're making is uh, you're nesting uh, some really awful things, especially because some of the Latin American countries are uh, following trends from, you know, countries who are, have political uh, stances who are not, you know, are a little bit, um, you know, they, they tend to uh, establish their opinion on political um, op opinions who are not what democracy is looking for. Right. So and, and this is happening in Latin America. So we are we are not only Costa Rica has the most important uh, technical matrix in in the in the region. Uh, we sit next to the Panama Channel, where one of the most important providers of service to the rest of the other countries, because in Costa Rica, we have not only some of the most important tech companies, but also hosting uh, systems, hosting providers data centers were some of the most important ones in the region. So there has to be a change. And some of our allies, uh, international allies, have, have um, realized about that. And well, one of them is the United States with now this um, uh, effort of providing us with this uh, um, capital that is most likely going to be used to uh, field up the new national cybersecurity law and the creation of the uh, National Cybersecurity Agency. I guess I'm wondering if a country like Panama might look to Costa Rica and say, oh, can we have something like what you have? Can you help us set that up in Panama? It's been a little bit difficult. You would think that collaboration between the countries in this region is, is really intensive. Like we talk a lot, but that's not true. <laughs> uh, so there is a, cultural, a lot of cultural differences in, in our countries and um, uh, political differences. So is not immediate. Uh, I, I would think that uh, some of these countries would have acted much quickly because they are probably in a worse position than us who have invested since 2000 in a lot of um, technical, technical uh, uh, capabilities. Uh, they're in a, a much worse position. But uh, yeah, there is a collaboration going through the national cybersecurity cluster with some of the clusters in other countries, but not, you know, at least not publicly, a lot of efforts to uh, send some of these knowledge down to our neighbors. Uh, I don't think they're really interested, and I don't think they're in a maturity level in which they uh, perceive this as something that they need at this moment, you know, which is a mistake. They, they really need to learn about what happened because they could be the next. After 18 months of incident response, Esteban has had a moment to come up for air and to think about his experience. 
It's not every day that your country asks you to step up and help secure it from online foreign adversaries. So at this time, I, I would say that um, the uh, incident that I attended um, back in April was probably the most important one in my career so far because I got to uh, not also work a national great incident, you know, national level incident, uh, but I also got to um, be a part of the declaration of which I'm not, you know, I'm not completely proud about this, but it, it really sets uh, a mark in history of the first country that declared a uh, national cyber emergency. You know, we unfortunately were the first ones, but this is uh, something that the whole world needs to see. We learned from the invasion to Ukraine that attacks to digital infrastructure are now part of the of the of the manual of war. We know that this is probably going to stay. It's going to be the, the 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 usage of cyber weapons is probably going to be the norm moving forward to deter uh, uh, enemies or you know do intelligence gathering before the attack of a country. We know that that cyber war has entered a new stage. So what happened in Costa Rica is something that needs to be studied. Needs to be under, we need to understand a lot more about how this happened, how 27 institutions of a country, which is a free country, is a democratic country, uh, got affected like this. Um, prior to this, I think Estonia was one of the examples that everybody was using to uh, you know, uh, put an example on, on attacks on critical infrastructure. But Estonia at that time was not online. Their systems were not uh, online and they were not completely digital. Everything was, you know, it was, it was a closed network. After that, they, they opened up, but we were attacked completely through the internet. So this means that they, they tried this on us. It worked. And the fact that it worked, uh, means that it will continue happening to others, you know? So this, we need to learn about this. We need to share this story. People need to know what happened here. And we need to put up uh, new mechanisms to strengthen at a national level, not only private companies, not only public companies working isolated. Uh, this is attacks to national, this is national degree attacks, right? National grade attacks. And, um, and, and it's a completely different animal. The consequences of a national uh, attack are huge. It impacts every single citizen on a country. It impacts lives. There is uh, people who dies after this. So it, it, we should never take this for granted. You know, it's, it's not a minor thing. It's, 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 a, it's a huge loss. I'd really like to thank Esteban for taking the time to talk about the Costa Rican ransomware attacks and their ongoing incident response to mitigate the effects. If Latin America is indeed another testing ground for nation states, then we really need to be looking to them to help them secure their systems to Latin America, and for that matter, Southeast Asia or Africa, in terms of cybersecurity. The more we raise the bar, the harder it is for these attacks to occur. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast, tell a friend. I bet there are others who like commercial-free narrative infosec podcasts. I have so many stories about hackers who are making a positive difference in the world. 
And be sure to check out Error Code, my new podcast that focuses on IoT and embedded security. Error Code is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon. And tell me what you like and even what you don't. The Hacker Mind is brought to you every two weeks, commercial-free, by For All Secure, the makers of Mayhem, an application security testing solution you can try for free at mayhem.security. For The Hacker Mind, I'm Robert Famosi.